Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. All right, I want to introduce you to our preacher this morning. This is in California, so we have the honor of hearing from Sir Richard Nelson, one of our, one of our elders here. He's preached a couple times in the past, and he's going to preach for us this morning. I, I highly respect this man. He loves the Word. He loves God. He loves the Gospel. So I'm happy to hear what you have to say for us. It's all yours. Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're getting revived and refreshed. It's good to have you here today. Uh, I want to ask you a question to start off. I'm supposed to answer questions, I know, but I'm going to ask a question. And the question is, what's going on in your heart today? I had a physical this past week. You know, they put the stethoscope on my heart. Everything was kind of okay, but... How's our spiritual heart doing? And more specifically, what is the trend over the past week or two? Just what's transpiring down here in your interactions with God? Because what happens down here actually goes out into our behavior. And so uh, one of the ways that God helps us to understand what's going on in our heart is he brings afflictions and pain and suffering and discouragement and trials. Should I keep on going? You know, the psalmist in Psalm 119 said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And I know for me personally, some of the times I've grown the most is when I was going through a difficult time. It's just kind of the way it is. So, afflictions. Some of the things that I struggle with, one is I'm impatient, especially when I'm driving. And in other ways, like trying to fix something in the house, I rush through it and I botch it. So I've done that. I've gone through heartbreaking relational conflicts within my family and in other church organizations and mission teams. It's been horrible. You know, I'm often awake from like 1 in the morning, 4 in the morning. And you know what's happening at 1 and 4 in the morning? I'm struggling with anxiety. And I'm worrying about stuff. I'm worrying about aging. Am I aging well? I'm worrying about our finances. I worry about my kids. I worry about some things going on here, and if I watch the news that day, I'm just troubled about what's going on in the world today. So, and sometimes, the times in those early mornings, it gets kind of dark, and there's spiritual warfare going on, and that's one of my struggles. But all of us have relational struggles, don't we? If you're married, you've probably had some arguments with your wife, your kids. Maybe you had an argument on the way in the church today, telling your husband, I can't believe you put that outfit on her to bring her to church today. I've read about that in books. <clears throat> Maybe you're having uh, struggles with parents. Like if your mom and dad were coming into town this week, how, well, how would you feel about that? If your sister or brother were coming into town, how would you feel about that? Oh boy, I get to see him, or oh no, here comes so-and-so. So, So, some of these afflictions can last for years, sometimes long times, when you don't talk to family members. I heard that with people. 
Sometimes we have health problems, chronic pain. Just doesn't go away. Diseases of various kinds. Even some of our kids are facing physical problems. We have financial problems. You have more bills at the end of the month than you have salary. So finances can be a big struggle. And sometimes we struggle with depression, anxiety, fear, and deep-seated insecurities. Does anyone in here have deep-seated insecurities? What about anger? Do you struggle with anger? Boy, that's me. And then sometimes we struggle with people that, don't, that oppose our faith. Maybe a family member that doesn't share our faith here, and we often have arguments, disagreements there. So I want to show you a diagram that has really kind of helped me. And uh, this is probably a pattern in your life, and this is certainly going to be a pattern in the life of David when we get into Psalm 40. But at the 12 o'clock position, we have struggles, we have pain. Fill in the adjective that fits in for you. I'm struggling with this. I'm having hard times with that. And so often those hardships push us towards Jesus. I pray more. I seek Jesus more when I'm struggling, having hardships. And then as I'm praying and I'm waiting, and waiting is hard, isn't it? Kind of hard to do that. And then after a time, we get some form of a relief. And that relief could be you got a raise in your salary, and so finances is kind of off the table for the moment. Maybe you have a good report from the doctor. Maybe there's some kind of a breakthrough in a family situation. Or nothing has really changed, but your time with Jesus is becoming so sweet. You sense the Lord's pleasure in your life. Scripture is speaking to you in ways that has never spoken to you before, even though the circumstances are still the same. So, and then we, when this happens, I always like to tell people what's going on in my life, like my wife and Jeremiah Dukes. And so I can tell them when good things are going on because I can celebrate this thing was really neat. And then from there, it gives us new strength and often this whole cycle removes, keeps moving right again. Is that true of you? What circle are you in today, I wonder? Probably in multiple circles. So King David, the guy that wrote our psalm for the day, had amazing struggles. King Saul was hunting him down to kill him. And he did nothing wrong. He was a fugitive on the run. And he could never understand that. David had family problems. I read the books of Samuel prior to this. And if you haven't read the books of Samuel in a while, you ought to read that and you can just see the problems that were going on. So he had, David had multiple wives and multiple children equals multiple problems. I don't advise you to have multiple wives. Amen. Yeah. So Amnon, one of his kids, raped his sister Tamar. Tamar's brother, in anger, Absalom, kills Tamar. And he ends up uh, uh, conspiring to take the kingdom away from David. David has to run and then David's army kills his son Absalom. And then when David comes in and then he has a sin with Bathsheba, he tries to cover that up. He ends up plotting the murder of Uriah. And we know what happened there. And so God even took that child out of that relationship. He had a lot of problems. But you know what the New Testament says? David is a man after my heart who will do all of my will. David is a man after my heart who does all my will. 
David wasn't great because he was not a pure person. David was great because he knew how to deal with his sins and he dealt with them. Good old David. So matters of the heart are of supreme importance. And this is probably my big idea because what goes on here in our spiritual heart, the transformations and interaction with God actually changes who we are on the outside. There is a cause-effect relationship between the condition of our heart and the conditions of our behavior. And if you're, uh, you will see this. So, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel, the prophet, was told by God to pick a new king because uh, King Saul made terrible decisions, sinful decisions, so we're going to get a, get a new new king. And so Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and he brought all of his sons like in a parade right before him. And God tells Jesse this because he looked on this one son and thought, that must be the guy. And God said, do not look on this one as his, on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Listen to this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance and the God looks on the heart. In the New Testament, Mark chapter 7, Jesus quoting Isaiah 29 says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I've been that way even in here. I'm singing the songs, going through the motions, but down here it's off in La La Land or wherever. 2 Corinthians 5.12, Paul was talking to the Corinthians about false teachers that were criticizing Paul's gospel message. And so in, in order to help the Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Let me read that one again. Those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Friends, if we're stuck with the outward appearance of our heart to the neglect of our internal heart, it's a slippery slope down to legalism. Slippery slope. Legalism is so toxic. I've struggled with it, and probably most of you have too. There should be no legalism. We have grace. Thank God for that. You know, you can't control circumstances, but you can deal with matters of the heart. So in Psalm 40 today, we see David, who's after walking a long period of time, finds some deliverance from God. We're not sure what the circumstances was, but it was good based on his excitement about that. But mark this, my buddies, my friends. God is always present with you. He cares about you. He's working. He's comforting. He's making himself known to those who suffer. He gives enduring strength, living hope, and lasting courage. So we're going to go to Psalm 40. If you haven't wandered there yet, when your electronic device or the real spiritual people who have paper Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 40. And before we get there, I want to give some observations because one of the ways when I look at Psalms and any other books, you know, I try to look at like pronouns. I'm kind of a pronoun geek. And so when you see a pronoun, you should really ask the question, what is it referring back to? And I think that's called the antecedent. Is that correct? Let's call it antecedent. And so in the Psalm 40, the pronouns I, me, and my 
are used 42 times. This is referring to David. It's an incredibly personal psalm. Many of the psalms are so personal. His heart is wrapped up right in this thing. And then there are two groups of people with some pronouns in there. One is called the community, or it's twice referred to the great congregation. There are a group of people that David hangs out with that really reinforces. This is kind of like church people, even though it wasn't a church. And then there's another group of people used about six times. These are the enemies. These are the people trying to take me down. The references to God, 38 times. References to God. His character, the things that he's doing, who he is. He's the rock. He's the one we need to go to. Verses 1 through 10 are a reflection of a past experience that David had with God. In the second part, verses 11 through 17, are prayers for the present and the future as he concludes this psalm. Are you ready? Let's pray. Good morning, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time. Thank you for the stirring worship today. Thank you how our hearts were turned vertical towards you. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you're available. Thank you that you know all things and you love us. There's nothing we could do that would make you love us any more than you do right now. So I pray for everybody here that you would minister to them through these scriptures, through the life of David, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who wrote this. And Lord, I would pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us all right now. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would transform us into the image of God. And Lord, for the pains and sufferings, the afflictions that many of us are going through, I pray we would not waste our pain, but we would learn the valuable lessons of going through hard times because I really think you're just trying to grow us up. Not just to get older, but actually to get better. So thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1. God's deliverance is experienced. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. How would you like to be in the miry bog today? I don't want to be there. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my heart, in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So, note first thing, David waited patiently. A lot of the Psalms, David is waiting. It's hard to wait. You want stuff. When I was a kid, I waited forever for Christmas. It never came around. But all of us are probably waiting on something. We're waiting for relief. We're, we're, we're waiting to get some kind of healing. We're waiting for that breakthrough in our job. We're waiting through that piece from the medical people to say things are okay. So David was waiting a long time because he was actually the king. He was anointed the king, but Saul was trying to murder him for a long period of time. David was saying, wow, what's going on? It was amazing how he waited. So, imagine. Second thing, oh, no, let me back up. You know, the problem with waiting is sometimes we take matters into our own hands, don't we? God is obviously busy in the other part of the galaxy. He's really busy, so I better do this stuff. Like Abraham and Sarah, remember they waited how many years to have Isaac? It was like 25 years. And they waited and they waited, and a couple times they just took matters into their own hands 
and birth Ishmael's, which kind of an interesting story right there. So, sometimes we don't want to take matters into our own hands. We want to wait. Waiting is good for us. Second, you might need to remind me of that. Second, note the verbs here that describe God's help for David. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry box, set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure, put a new song in his heart. That was his result. So in verse 3, God's deliverance produced personal worship in David, but it also spilled out into public worship into his people there. Could I say this? Change lives, change lives. Change lives, change lives. When there's a change going on in your life and you share that with other people, I remember many times I'd say, I want what so-and-so has. Man, they got the joy of the Lord. They got the Bible down. They got whatever it is. Change lives, change lives. And it caused worship in the, in the community of God there. Verse 4. God's protection is proclaimed. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. To those who go astray after a lie, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. So in difficult times, it's easy to look for help in other places. Israel, in difficult times, would turn towards idolatry. Sometimes Israel would turn and make an alliance with Egypt because maybe the Egyptians will help us because God is not helping us here. So who do you trust when things get hard? Who do you go to? Notice that verse 4, it says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. The word blessed means to have a deep-seated joy and contentment. It's the same verb in Psalm chapter 1. Oh, the happiness of the person that would put their trust in God. Verse 6. This is an amazing part. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it was written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You know, at first glance, it's kind of shocking that burnt offerings, sin offerings, God seemingly doesn't delight in. You know, you would think the Old Testament person, what? What's going on here? But what is really true, God wants internal obedience from the heart to him. So sacrificing unsuspecting animals with no corresponding corresponding inward transformation of the worshiper is worthless. This is 1 Samuel 15, 22, the kind of is similar to that. And so Saul was the new king. Saul had made some reckless and stupid and really disobedient 
decisions. Samuel the prophet comes and rebukes him, saying this. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Because King Saul went ahead of himself. He did things he shouldn't have done. He offered sacrifices that he shouldn't have sacrificed because Samuel was supposed to do that. And in this passage, David, as he is writing this, is actually part of it is speaking about the coming Messiah. This is a messianic passage. That's exciting when Old Testament scripture is pointing ahead to the Messiah, in this case, about 700 years ahead of time. Does that get you excited? I kind of salivate when I see this stuff. So, to share my joy with you, this psalm was quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And so I'm going to quote these verses here, have them up on the slide. And so remember, the writer of Hebrews was reflecting back on what happened 700 years ago when David wrote it. He quotes this in there. And as we read this, you're going to notice that it wasn't David writing. It was Jesus was writing this. Does that blow your mind? So the, the Bible is so linked together. This is why the Bible is authoritative. It's worth building your life on. For since the law was, has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I think that's a hint of his incarnation and what's going to happen there. In verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. John 4, 34 in the New Testament, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of God. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have sanctified through the offering of the body, Jesus Christ, once for all. Sorry, should have advanced that a little sooner. Notice those last words. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a commentator named George Guthrie that said this. It's worth looking at. He said, the writer of Hebrews explains that the sacrifices of the old system were, for some reason, unsatisfactory, even though God had prescribed them in the law, pointing to the heartfelt devotion as an essential component of true worship. The practice of ritualistic sacrifice, apart from sincere commitment to God's will, falls short of the divine intention of the will. 
external efforts to worship God must have a corresponding inner obedience and sincerity of worship. Is this true for us today? Inner transformation of our heart is the life of Christ that is working in us and then moving us out in song and prayer and obedience and all those things. I would say yes it is, but sometimes we get a little bit confused on that and I want to use an illustration using the doctrine of salvation as an illustration of this. So, we know that salvation of sinful man has never been on the basis of external works that we do in order to earn our salvation. Right? A few nods there. Absolutely right. Thank God for that. So, in our context today, going to church does not save you. Reading your Bible does not save you. Giving money to the church does not save you. Doing good things does not save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Giving intellectual assent to the gospel does not save you. Giving intellectual assent to the gospel, you may understand the facts. Just knowing the facts does not save you. Saying that you are a Christian does not save you. And furthermore, I believe there are people who think they're Christians, but in reality are not Christians. Let me give you an example, an illustration. So I grew up in Steamboat Springs a long time ago. I went to the local church, Lutheran church. I was confirmed in the Lutheran church when in the eighth grade. I was examined in front of the church by the pastor. He could ask me any question out of Luther's small catechism. This is why I'm on medication today. So up through the time when I was either 24 or 25 years old, if you would have asked me, are you a Christian, Richard? I would have said yes. But I really wasn't. Because my definition of Christian was, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a fill-in-the-blank there. And so just saying that I was a Christian did not make me a Christian. And I believe Satan uses his power of deception and misleading people uh, to get them in these areas that are really tricky and horrible. So what is needed is inner transformation of our heart that produces these internal acts. Well, what would it be? Well, what really does constitute salvation? We really should talk about that. Salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. It's through Christ alone. The New Testament is clear that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven paid the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Hallelujah on that. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Salvation is by faith alone. This was kind of a stumbling block to me when I was coming to faith in Christ. Couldn't quite figure it out. Biblical faith is more than intellectual agreement to the facts of the gospel. I knew that from my Lutheran days. But faith, think about a coin. A coin has heads and tails. And so the faith thing, on one side is faith, the other side is repentance. Repentance meaning you're, there's a change of attitude towards things. I'm tired of the way I'm living. I, I never really thought much about the Bible. I'm starting to warm up to the Bible. I, have, I don't have what this person wants. I want to have that. 
I'm tired of sinning the way I do. I want to change. I've been to church, it's boring, but now I go to church and I find it pretty interesting. All that change is happening, but you have to have faith in something and then you place your faith in Christ. You understand His death, burial, and resurrection and your faith in that and your confidence in that brings you new life in Christ. Also, it's not so much how much faith you have, but the object of your faith is of supreme importance. I can be on the Empire State Building with an umbrella and saying, I believe I'm going to be okay and jump off. And you have faith in the wrong object. But your faith in Christ is the only object that is there. I want to give you another illustration. A long time ago, I was in the Army and had the opportunity to go to the Airborne School in Fort Benning, Georgia, where they teach crazy people how to jump out of an airplane and survive. My first jump, we had five jumps. We were in a C-141, 1,000 feet off the ground, and I'm about 10 men from the door, and then they tell us to stand up, and we click on to the static line, and I'm thinking, Nelson, what? what on earth have you done? Are you really this stupid? And then they open the door, and oh my gosh, the sound behind a jet engine. And I could look out the door, and there was heat waves coming out. And I'm going to go through this? And so the red light turned to a green light, and like <laughs> sheep led to the slaughter, man, we just walked out that door. And for five seconds, it was total chaos. There was a huge, there was amazing noise, and then a, a gigantic jerk. And then all of a sudden it was quiet because that plane was about a quarter mile down the way. And I looked up, and glory, my chute had opened. And then it was fun. You know, we're yelling and screaming, thinking we're really cool and all that. But I put my faith in that chute, that parachute. I entrusted my whole life to it. It's not just part of it. I'm, you, you, just can't, you just can't say, I'm going to take part of you, Jesus, and then I'll do that. It is all. It's like getting married. You just know, when you get married, it's, it's for life. It's like you're handcuffed to your wife, and this, we're going to do this no matter what. I think I still need medication. So salvation is in Christ alone, it's by faith alone, and it's by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift, not a result of works. How clear could that be? Why? So that no one may boast, hey, I'm so spiritual, God would have to let me into heaven. Absolutely not. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. One definition of grace that I really enjoyed is God is giving you the strength and the desire to do His will. It's by grace. Grace is scandalous, isn't it? It's just, can it be true? Well, there's more. Verse 11. God helps us inwardly, especially with sins. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So this section begins a, a transition from past experiences to move to the present and the future. And note the words that describe David's struggle with sin. 
You have uh, evils have encompassed me. Iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. And my heart fails me. But notice also the covenant language there of God. His mercy. Steadfast love. And faithfulness. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And justice is giving you what you do deserve. Verse 13. God's help outwardly, dealing with the outside world. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. And the aha, aha is a figure of speech that expresses malicious joy and satisfaction over the misfortune of an enemy. So the enemy of David, they would take great joy in making his life miserable. There's a group called Open Doors, and it's an organization that monitors persecution in the global church. Every year they come up with a watch list that lists the top 50 countries in the, in the world that persecute the church. The number one being the worst, and then down to 50, and then it goes down from that. The top two countries are Afghanistan and North Korea this year. They say that within these 50 countries that they identify, there's 245 million people who are, 245 million Christians who are intimidated, put in prison, or put to death for their faith. That's one in nine believers. If we count off every nine persons who are believers, that would be the statistic there. There's incredible persecution going on. Some say more now than ever before. So, the New Testament is full of, we will be persecuted. All who desire to be godly will be persecuted. It will come. And so we need this help to deliver there. 16 and 17. Kind of a conclusion here, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And then as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. So he closes this psalm with a prayer of praise in verse 16. And then a petition. The praise rises up from the people of the great congregation. It's like here. And the petitions from the king's heart confessing his need for continued thoughts and his timely help and deliverance in the future. And we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world came a man, suffered and died, and rose again on the third day to pay for our sin. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who indwells us now forever. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You change us, you transform us, Lord, and pray that this would continue to happen in our world here today. So I pray that you would just give us wisdom and help on this, God, because we need help. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.